Welcome back to another Friends of ASOR podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Anderson. In this podcast, we're discussing the article Sex Crimes and the Laws of the Hebrew Bible from the recent special issue of Near East Archaeology magazine, Crime and Punishment in the Bible and the Near East. We're discussing this with the article's author, Dr. Bruce Wells, who is the professor of Hebrew Bible in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. The next voice you'll hear is Dr. Wells giving a brief overview of his article. Uh, this issue of uh, Near Eastern archaeology had several articles devoted to the topic of crime. So um, I decided I would go through the laws in the Pentateuch, or Torah, of the Hebrew Bible and look for laws that dealt with sexual acts that might be considered crimes. Now, our understanding of crime in the modern world may well be different from what the ancient understanding of crime was. So what I tried to figure out was which acts of a sexual nature dealt with in the laws would have been considered by the people in the ancient world, specifically ancient Israel, as a crime. And what I concluded was that the only act, sexual act, that fit into the category of crime uh, is adultery. And by crime, I guess I should say, I mean uh, some act that's considered a harm against an individual or society and that is serious enough for the society to say, we have to make sure this is punished in a fairly serious way. So in your article, you mentioned three types of what you call wrongs that are found within most ancient Near Eastern legal systems. Could you tell us what those are? Yes. Uh, in our day and age, we divide harms or wrongs basically into two categories, um, criminal harms and civil harms. Uh, that doesn't work quite so well in the ancient world. And so we can divide the harms or wrongs in the ancient world into these three categories. The first is what I would call harms against superiors, mainly the king or the gods. And this would include treason against the king or blasphemy against the gods. And these sorts of wrongs are punishable with death. I didn't really look at these in the article because none of these wrongs are of a sexual nature, so it wasn't that relevant. The second category would be serious wrongs against an individual, things like murder, theft, false accusation, kidnapping, uh, and also adultery and sexual assault. And then the third category would be minor harms against an individual, such as not repaying a debt on time or very minor assault, things like that. And those, in the third category, those wrongs would be punished with some kind of small monetary fine. And I think that third category fits our, mostly fits our category of civil um, infractions. But it's that second category with murder, theft, etc., that best fits our category of crime. And um, in the ancient Near East, it seems as if those sorts of wrongs uh, could be punished in one of two ways. There could be direct physical punishment. If you murder somebody, you yourself can be put to death. Or there could be a large monetary payment of some kind. So if you murder someone, you could offer a large payment to the victim's family in lieu of the death penalty. So of those three, it was that second category that I was focused on. So why is it that you think they made adultery one of those crimes that would have to warrant one of those punishments? That's a good question, and it's not terribly easy to answer, I don't think. I mean, it sort of makes sense to us that murder and kidnap and theft would be in that category. And those are um, wrongs that violate another person, especially when you think of theft and kidnapping. They mainly violate uh, the head of household. So if you kidnap 
the male head of household in ancient Rome. She kidnapped his son. Um, you've wronged him in a certain way. If you steal from the household, you've wronged him, not necessarily his wife or his children. And even with murder, in some cases, if you were to murder his son, they would consider it also a violation of his rights, not just a violation of, of the son that was that was murdered. And he, the, the male head of household, the father would have the choice to decide what to do if he could prove that a certain person was guilty before the judges. When it comes to adultery, uh, I would say it fits the pattern in the sense that adultery is a violation of the husband's rights, the husband of the adulterous wife. So if a man were to sleep with a married woman, that counts as adultery because she's married, and it's a violation of her husband's rights over her sexuality, I guess. Now, if a married man were to go sleep with someone else, such as a prostitute, it wouldn't count as adultery because that woman's not married. Um, and he's not violating another man's rights by that particular action. So that's sort of how adultery was defined in the ancient Near East. The woman involved had to be married, and it was a violation of her husband's rights, a serious violation. And there wouldn't be any violation of the wife's rights? Right. So that's how I see it. Are you asking about the wife uh, that's involved in the act, or let's say uh, the man who's, a man is married, he goes and sleeps with... The man who's married, if he goes and sleeps with a prostitute, then, or another woman of any stature, I guess. Yeah, his wife is not, they would say his wife is not violated in any way. Her rights aren't violated. She belongs to her husband, and he can sleep with whom he will, and he just has to be careful, I guess, not to sleep with a woman who's married. belongs in some sense to another man. Now, let's say he sleeps with an unmarried woman who's the daughter of another male head of household. That would be considered a minor harm, and he would pay that father of the woman he slept with, a sum of money, and uh, then in some texts in the Bible, in Deuteronomy, for example, it says that he should then marry the woman he slept with. In Exodus, it says he can marry her or the father can decide not to have them get married, but he still has to pay a sum of money, but he's not subject to the death penalty or any other sort of really serious punishment. On the topic of punishments, you mentioned in the article that in the case of adultery, um, sometimes the husband gets to choose the punishment for his adulterous wife, I guess. If you had to speculate, would you say that it's more common for the husbands to choose the max penalty, of, like which would be death, or to take the lesser penalties like divorce? Yeah, that's another good question, and we don't know for sure. I would say, more often than not, the husband probably chose a lesser penalty. There are some texts that allude to this sort of thing in the Bible. For example, in Hosea, there's a kind of allegory where a husband who seems to represent the God Yahweh divorces his wife, who seems to represent the people of Israel, and it's because she has slept with someone else, and uh, in, in the allegory that would mean she worshiped, she, the people of Israel, worshiped another God. And it's divorce and not death that's talked about as the punishment. Um, and in the book of Jeremiah, Yahweh himself is described as saying that because his people committed adultery, he divorced them. And um, there are a few texts from the ancient Near East that will describe what seem to be cases where a man brings his wife to the court for adultery. And again, the main punishment is divorce. There might also be an additional financial penalty and sometimes a public shaming of the woman. What the, the husband who's wronged, what he actually can't do is conspire with his wife to entrap another man in adultery. So there might be some business 
person that he is having a feud with, and maybe he says to his wife, look, let's try to entrap this guy. You pretend to like him, become friends with him, try to get him to sleep with you. I'll walk in and catch him in the act of committing adultery. I'll make sure you get let off the hook, but we'll make sure he gets put to death and punished in some other way. And there are a couple of law codes from around the ancient Near East that say if the husband lets his wife off the hook and doesn't punish her, then he also has to allow the man she slept with to go free. Or if he punishes his wife with divorce, let's say, which is like a financial penalty for her, the man she slept with is punished with a financial penalty that's roughly equivalent to what the wife would be experiencing. So you can't like put one to death and not the other. Exactly. So you don't hear too much about divorce, or at least I have never heard too much about divorce from that era. What was that process like? Could anybody get divorced for multiple reasons, or was it strictly for like adultery, high crime issues that they allowed divorces? Well, they seem to allow divorce, especially if it's initiated by the man, for just about any reason. I would say they have what we might even call no-fault divorce, but this would typically be just for the man. If he wanted to divorce his wife for any reason, he could. He wasn't prevented from doing so, but he would ordinarily have to pay her some kind of financial settlement. You can imagine, I suppose, in the ancient world, a woman who is sent out of the household like that couldn't really earn a living on her own and would need some money to set up her own household with or to find another husband with. But you could also divorce someone for cause. Uh, again, if a wife committed adultery or if she was caught stealing from the husband or acting in kind of a lewd fashion maybe or bringing ill repute to the husband, you can divorce her for cause. And that would mean he'd have to show cause to a panel of judges probably or to his town of town officials, and then he could divorce his wife without having to pay a financial settlement. And she might then go back to her father's house if he's still alive. If he's not, uh, she would be left basically penniless, and she would live with other women who were marginalized in those societies, other widow, other women like widows or divorcees, and, and would probably have a pretty difficult life after that. Uh, the other complicating issue is children. And today, you know, if there's a divorce and children are involved, uh, that can complicate the situation. And we don't have a lot of information about this, but if there are children that the couple has had, it seems that it, it was harder for the husband to initiate a divorce and he would have to pay more money to the woman. And again, it's not entirely clear, but the end result would not be as favorable for the husband as it might have been if they, if they hadn't had children then. Right. So in the article, we're mostly talking about Deuteronomy, and I'm just wondering where were these laws practiced? And if in those places, if they could choose that they're going to create their own law system or if they had to follow those laws? Yeah, the book of Deuteronomy, we think, was put together for purposes other than creating some kind of law code or set of legal statutes for ancient Israel. The laws in Deuteronomy are there, I think, mainly to support and lend authenticity and authority to the covenant that the book talks about, or the agreement that the book says is being made at that time between Yahweh and the people of Israel. And I think the, the authors of Deuteronomy are drawing upon laws 
laws or legal customs that are being practiced in their societies, but they also seem to include laws that may not have been practiced. Uh, for example, there's a law in Deuteronomy that restricts uh, how many horses the king can have, and it says the king has to read from the Torah or the law of Yahweh every day, uh, and it seems to limit the king's power a great deal, and it's sort of hard to imagine that the king would allow a law like that to actually be implemented. Right. Um, the, uh, the laws in Deuteronomy themselves are not the legal statutes by which people had to ab- uh, abide, but some of the laws in Deuteronomy and other books like Exodus and maybe Leviticus, some of those laws may have uh, been very similar to uh, laws that were being practiced in, in the society. But the problem is, from ancient Israel, we don't have very many legal documents of practice, such as actual trial records that would tell us what sorts of verdicts uh, courts were rendering. And we have very few contracts show us what legal practice was actually like. So we have to look at neighboring societies um, like Syria or Mesopotamia, from which we actually have a large number of legal documents of practice, including a large number of court records. There are court records from these societies that show judges enforcing laws uh, that actually do look like some of the laws we have in the Bible. So that suggests, at least, um, that some of these laws from the Bible were being put into practice um, in ancient Israel as well. And I think if you were to travel back in time to ancient Israel and to visit one of these towns, you would probably find the people following some of the laws that you find in the Bible, but you'd probably find them having other laws and rules that govern their legal practice that you don't find in the Bible. So I suspect it was a mix. I don't know, you know if people felt compelled to follow certain laws, and I'm guessing there was a mix of tradition and custom mm-hmm. combined with laws that were made by the king and maybe by city elders and things like that. But what we have in the Bible itself probably doesn't represent um, the actual laws of ancient Israel. It might contain some of them, but I don't think it was written necessarily to be the law code for that country. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of the laws and how things are often left up to interpretation, you mention Eckhart Otto and Susan Schultz, and you mention their interpretation of the laws, and you say that they differ on an arguably really important detail, and for the people listening to this podcast, could you elaborate on what they differ on? Sure. It is interesting because they read the exact same text and come to really diametrically opposed conclusions. So Otto says that Deuteronomy makes an important advance forward in the legal status of women and raises their legal status higher than it was in other ancient Near Eastern societies. And he says this because he thinks that Deuteronomy is treating women as standalone legal subjects just as it would treat men. And not as strictly property? Right, not as property, not as just subject to the whims of their husbands. You could say that in some ways, women back then, the law they had to obey was whatever their husbands said. Mm-hmm. And the punishments they might suffer would be whatever their husbands decided. Otto is saying that that's not the case in Deuteronomy. They're, they're saying the woman is responsible for her own actions, just as a man would be. 
and he gets this from the text that says, if a, if a man has sex with a married woman, the two of them both uh, may be put to death. Mm-hmm. Susan Schultz looks at this text and says, no, no, this is not good for women, this is bad for women, and she says the text actually reduces their legal status uh, compared with what it was in other ancient Near Eastern societies. And the reason she says this is that the woman's consent, she argues, is not taken into account. And uh, the men are so interested in controlling the women that they're going to say she should be put to death for sleeping with another man, even if the other man forced her to sleep with him. Right, because in the article you mentioned that the main difference between consent is just the location of where it took place, like if it took place in a city versus the countryside. Right, that distinction between sex in the city and sex in the countryside is specifically talked about for a betrothed woman, someone who's just engaged to be married and isn't fully married. Oh, that doesn't even include people who are fully married. Well, oh. right, but Otto says, well... The authors of Deuteronomy are telling us that they would take that into account for fully married women as well. Mm. And Schultz is saying, no, if it doesn't say that that relates to fully married women, then it doesn't relate to fully married women. And I tend to agree with Otto on this. I mean, it seems reasonable to assume it would count for both, but I can't prove that. But you're right about the location. Um, if it takes place in the city, they assume she did indeed give her consent. If it takes place in the countryside, they assume she was saying no, but no one is around to hear her protesting and trying to fight the men off and so on. So that's all based on the assumption that she wasn't being threatened, that somebody who forced themselves on her still like gave her the opportunity to yell or get the attention of somebody else. Right, good point. I mean... You may have said, if you make me, if you make any noise, I'm going to yeah. hurt your family or something. Or, or I was holding a knife to her throat. You know? mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a good point, and I'm not sure to what degree they would have taken the woman's consent into account. It seems like they're trying to take it into account some, but it relates only to her culpability. The man involved is punished in the same way. No matter what. Regardless, yeah, no matter so what. So you mentioned that... I mean, if it did take place in the, in the city or, or if they were questioning her um, consent or intent for the, the crime, that a truthful witness would be enough to, I guess, prove her innocence in place of two witnesses. So I guess my question is, what is a truthful witness? Yeah, in another publication, I make the argument that if you only have one witness, you usually have to have some other evidence. If you have two witnesses, they consider that completely good enough. And it's hard to say exactly what a truthful witness is. I think what I would, the distinction I would make is between a false witness and what I might call a good faith witness. And a false witness would be one where they can show the statements made in court were completely false and there's enough reason to believe that the witness's motives were duplicitous in some way. Mm-hmm. With a good faith witness, they might not turn out to be right, or the judges might disagree with them, but there's no uh, evidence to suggest that they were being malicious when they made their statements. Whether or not they're truthful, you know, is another question. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I can get behind that. So, what was the most challenging part 
of your research for writing this article? In terms of my own research, I guess what was hard was coming to terms with the fact that they operated in just a very different way from how we do today, and that some of these acts that we would consider sexual assault, sexual violence, and rape um, were not treated in that way. You know, I have a teenage daughter, actually, and if someone were to perpetrate some kind of sexual violence on her, today I could prosecute that, have that person prosecuted and seriously punished. But in the ancient world, I, could, I couldn't have done that. Uh, I would have had to accept some sort of payment, perhaps, from the perpetrator, even if my daughter hadn't consented. Right. Um, and, and in some cases, I would have to let the two of them marry, even if I didn't want that to happen, and even if she didn't want that to happen. And trying to navigate through these issues without, you know, sitting back in harsh judgment of these ancient societies and, and um, just trying to describe kind of the way they saw the world, the way they handled it, on the one hand, and then not trying to just gloss over the fact that an act of sexual violence is being talked about here was was hard to do. And, and I have a few footnotes in the article, and um, I try to deal with that a little bit in one of the footnotes, but some scholars have called all of us to task for not being honest enough about the sexual violence that's discussed in some of this literature. No, I mean, I imagine it's incredibly difficult. I mean, we all have our own biases living in the time and age that we live in now. And reading about it, it is really hard not to be like, well, wait a minute, why are, why are only the wives being punished? Or why are, yeah, it's, I can relate to how hard. And it must be really hard for you as the researcher going back and looking through all of it. I can only imagine. Yeah. Uh, one temptation, of course, is to make all sorts of value judgments about these people. And I think the scholar's job, there's a time and place for the scholar to do that. But um, in other cases, we're trying to describe what was happening in that society. And I know, you know, 100 years from now, 150 years from now, people will look back at my generation and probably be aghast at something that we have done or that we're not doing. And make plenty of value judgments about us and for whatever reason we're just not aware of what we're doing wrong right now because of our own biases and prejudices so there is a time and place for value judgments but one also has to be careful because one will also probably be judged in that same way down the road at some point all right so on a less depressing note what was the most interesting thing you learned while researching this article two things i would say um I'm still amazed at how two intelligent people can look at the same text and come to two very different conclusions. And I've been in this boat before where I read a text and I think one thing, and then a good friend of mine might read the same text and come up with a completely different conclusion. And that was the case with Eckhart Otto and Suzanne Schultz. The other thing I would say is it became much more clear to me in doing this research that there is a collection of laws from the ancient Near East that does count certain kinds of sexual assault, apart from adultery, as a crime. And this collection is called the Middle Assyrian Laws. They're from northern Iraq and date to around uh, 1200, 1100 BCE, something like that. They talk about one man sexually assaulting another man, and that counts as sexual violence. 
that might be understandable because the man is the, is the victim. But right, then, I was going to say, would that just go back to the whole doing harm to the head of household thing? Exactly. So <laughs> there's that. And then, but they do have one law about a man assaulting another man's wife. It says if, if he lays a hand on her and acts uh, like an animal, like a sexually aroused animal or something, phrase, <laughs> it uses phraseology like that. Or yeah, so like her. oddly specific. Like exactly, yeah. So if he touches her in this way or kisses her, he can have his finger cut off or his lower lip cut off in the case of kissing. It does say she's the she's a married woman, and it doesn't try to explain much else. But I hadn't paid much attention to this particular material before, and I found that. I couldn't talk about it much in the article, but I found that to be very interesting, and I made a note of it because uh, it does make the Middle Assyrian law stand out a little bit because they're going into more detail about these two particular kinds of um, sexual violence. No, it is really interesting, and I guess one reason I find it so interesting is that we often hear about the virtue or value of a woman going into a marriage and what is expected of her and, like, I guess her purity so it's interesting to me that there aren't more laws regarding that, given that if that is violated before she's married, then that can affect the rest of her life. It can, and um, the laws that speak to that try to protect her father mainly, it seems, so that if she's violated before she gets married, the man who violates her has to pay her father because from this point forward, she won't be desirable probably to another man, and so the father won't get what we call bride wealth or a bride price paid to him because, as you said, no one's going to be interested in her anymore. Even if he does get paid off by the violator and the daughter and the man don't get married, the daughter can live with her father, but then when he passes away... Like, um, yeah, who will take care of her? Yeah, exactly. And this, I mean, this is in particular one of those cases where my bias from the time that I live in just sort of takes over and I find it so hypocritical that you know young men like young unmarried men didn't have to suffer the same prejudices or issues um I mean some of it may be men trying to control women it was a patriarchal society right they were also very concerned that which I think they were that a man would know who his true offspring were. It was important that his property go to his genuine offspring. It was important that after he died, they would be the ones to pray for him in the afterlife and, and perform rituals that might help him in the afterlife. So there's this question of paternity that plays into this. Um, you know, we argue about this. So it was probably some combination of a male power trip to some extent and concern about offspring and, and knowing knowing that you can identify clearly who your offspring are. If your wife is sleeping with other men and she gets pregnant, you don't know whose child it is. Right. That would be a little bit harder not having DNA tests back then. Exactly. Right. That's always the problem. All right. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, I think that's it. I'm just uh, happy to have the chance to talk about this. I think it's all very interesting how societies. Every society tries to deal with sexual activity and tries to control it in various ways, and, you know, we are still dealing with this today. What's the best way to uh, handle sexual behavior? And, and psychologists talk about it, sociologists. 
it's interesting to see how they tried to deal with these issues in the ancient world, I think. So always happy to talk about my research and work. It's a lot of fun. No, we're always happy to talk to you. It is something that it's really interesting to see develop over time, given that this isn't a new development. Like, it's, one would argue, human nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And women had certain rights in the ancient world that you might not expect. In certain cases, they could own property. And they weren't always treated just as property. And as you compare them, uh, I should also say they often had an important economic function within the household. They could be a good, smart uh, woman could make uh, life a lot easier for uh, her household. The property things really, I actually did not know that, that women could own property back then. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Usually it was jointly with their husbands. But if the husband were to die, um, they would become... If they had held it jointly with the husband, they could become the sole owner. And sometimes the husband could give them, in his, in his last will and testament, he could give them the rights of ownership. He didn't always do that, but we do have some texts that indicate that. And uh, I was going to say, if you compare their, their plight with that of women in the Middle Ages or even uh, the early modern era, in the 1600s or something, their situation back then wasn't all that bad when you think, you know, in the 1600s, by that time, women should have had many more rights and privileges, but in fact, they didn't. Right. So comparatively speaking, it kind of went up and then down. Yeah, I think so. I haven't, I haven't studied <laughs> all these centuries, but that's my feeling. All right. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Caitlin. Appreciate it. This has been a Friends of ASOR podcast. The Friends of ASOR initiative is an outreach program of the American Schools of Oriental Research. Anyone can become a friend and it's free. Just go to asorblog.org backslash FOA dash registration to sign up. Again, that's asorblog.org backslash FOA dash registration. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out the ASOR blog for all of our podcasts, videos, and a whole lot more.